You know, you think we'd know what we're doing at this point, but maybe we don't. We do not. We don't. We'll just do the, uh, the blind open, the cold open, as it were. In this episode of Brilliant, we'll talk about three counterintuitive tips for successful digital transformation. Easy for you to say. I'm Justin Jurek, Vice President of User Experience at Mignani, and with me, as always, is Justin Dobb, President of Mignani. How's it going, Justin? It's going very well, thank you. Happy post-4th of July to you. Indeed, I didn't blow off a finger. That's good. So that's good. That's good. I feel like if you come back with all your digits... That was a successful 4th of July holiday. Yeah, although I did read an article uh, this morning talking about apparently all the illegal fireworks that were blown off in L.A. led to massive pollution issues. Oh, the video was cool, though. Yeah. Did you see the helicopter video? Oh, no. Oh, there was this great uh, video from the newscopter. They were just kind of panning around the skyline, and you could see just in 360 degrees all the fireworks just <laughs> popping. For Yeah. But, yeah. When you're in a bowl, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and it already has smog, that that helps. So, um, let's talk a little bit about the news. First off, uh, a couple articles uh, we saw just this week. The first about an arms race that's basically been kicked off between the chip manufacturers due to all the AI technology that's coming online. My suspicion, right before I started reading the article, was gonna, it was going to be all about NVIDIA and how NVIDIA is driving this thing. But yep. the truth is, I guess, what I didn't realize is the big arms race is about edge computing processing. So things that are on your mobile device, something that's inside your Alexa. Hmm. And so the difference between those two is all about power, right? So uh, NVIDIA has some awesome chips that are, you know, you can, they're made, of course, for graphics processing, but they're perfect for AI and machine learning, yep. but they, you know, need like 300 watts of power. Yeah, much, much bigger <laughs> so, draw. So you would you get melt a, your phone. <laughs> yeah, third degree burn on your thigh for putting that in your pocket. Um, so there's, you know, the, there's now this big kind of uh, arms race, and how do you make the chip that speeds up AI on, you know, a device, things that are on the, as they say, the network edge. Hmm. And uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens. And, there, you know, I wish this article had more kind of <laughs> direction to say, like, these are the winners. But they really were just saying that between, The race has begun. Yeah, between, you know, IBM and NVIDIA and AMD um, and, you know, uh, ARM, which isn't really like a manufacturer per se, but right. they are the kind of licensing designer slash license or of um, like all the chips that are in your, your Apple devices. Yeah. You know, I feel like anytime a new technology comes into play, right, it starts off this new cycle where maybe there were losers with one technology. They all of a sudden are able to grab a new foothold and run, you know, if they can be first to the party. So it'll be interesting to see where, where these different manufacturers go. Yeah, I think the big issue really is, you know, who's going to be the next x86 right the mm -hmm. intel platform that really drove the explosion of pcs yeah that there was a you know kind of unified platform and that's the big question is right will any of these create the wintel right so that there's yeah, an yeah. operating system that everyone can write for and you know on top of a processor that everyone can write for yeah and that creates a critical mass of potential yeah time will tell time will tell uh, the second article you brought up this week, which was really interesting and, and gets to kind of some of the other peripheral social media context, but YouTube is is trying to take more control about calling balls and strikes in terms of what's real news and what's quote-unquote fake news starting to badge content uh, so that it's a reliable news source. 
interesting how I, I don't know how you do that it feels to me like the genie is a little out of the bottle there but right and, and they're not actually so bold and brash as to start labeling things as fake or not fake right um and and the truth is you know it, it's not youtube's fault that these terrible things are being promoted and uh, right. it's our fault for watching them mm-hmm. right as a as a culture yeah um, because the more they get watched, the more they get promoted, etc. And so, but what they're trying to do is bring in, you know, equal time, for lack of a better term. So, like, if it's, you know, conspiracy video that the moon landing never happened, they're going to want to pull up uh, a link to an article in the search results that is all about the moon landing, right? Yeah, that yeah. is theoretically a verified source for the quote-unquote truth about yeah. the moon landing. Yeah, that's just the man, though, man. It is just telling you that the moon land or happened. It really happened. Yeah, yeah. I'm pretty sh- pretty sure. Pretty sure it really the, happened. The Earth is roundish, uh, oblate spheroid. Is that yeah. what they say? Oblate spheroid. Yeah, I'll give that to you. And uh, and uh, we landed on the moon. You know, uh, pretty much Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone. I'm sorry if the five listeners that we have are going to get upset about that. <laughs> but these these are the things that I believe. It is a really delicate balance there. It, well. Some of the attraction to why people enjoy conspiracy theories is that there's a little bit of that skepticism hardwired into being a human, you know, to to kind of to question, to tease out like what the veracity is of anything that anyone says, right? You're going to ask a question, well, is that true? Is that not true? I th- think for me, what is interesting about YouTube making a play here is that so much of the content that you would deem as like legitimate is kind of boring to consume, you know? And so I think there's, there's a, there's an argument to be made there that, you know, and I'm not saying that news should be entertainment, but there facts have to be packaged in an attractive way that people can consume it just as easily as, you know, a, you know, smoking at the ears conspiracy theorist is doing you know, on their their side of the coin. Yeah, and I wonder, too, how much of this has to do with, you know, it used to be to, to read crazy stuff like this, you had to, like, go buy a book or go to the mm-hmm. library and some kind of have a public face to your yep. search. Uh, whereas, you know, the anonymity of social media and yeah. the web and, you know, like, uh, kind of people's kind of inner demons are showing a little bit. Yeah. Um, it's. I don't really blame YouTube for that. No, I think that no, they the, provide the platform. Uh, I'm not sure they can solve it either. I think until unless there was some determination, which of course it would kill the business. But if there's some determination, like everything I watch is publicly like searchable, like you mm. know, for, like yeah, like you could do, you could come to my profile and just look through my history without asking oh, me man. or something. Now, that would probably, you know, uh, you know. Needless to say, have a chilling effect on democracy, but um, it would also probably <laughs> side kind effect, of, kind of chilling you know, effect on democracy. Yeah, have a have that uh, um, side. Also, the other side effect of weighing down kind of these darker impulses, right? Yeah. And so that they're not, you know, so we're not so quick to 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 fuel the recommendation engine with our clicks. Yeah. You know, I don't think that's a good idea. Um, I just don't think it's solvable. You said the genie's out of the bottle. I, I agree. And the you know, at one point YouTube said we're going to have Wikipedia links. You know, I'm like, oh my god, well, that's, that's not any better. No, that is not a verified source. But, yeah. You know, so we'll see what happens. Yeah, I part of it too is educating the populace on how to actually 
like critically vet information. I think current in our current media environment, stuff that is just patently false is presented in a way that is as legitimate as stuff that's verifiably true. What it actually requires, the real solve is teaching children, teaching people how to digest media in such a way that they can recognize what is a verifiable news source and what is a, you know, some guy with the blog writing stuff that he thinks, which is kind of what uh, we're going to talk about next. Right, right? That's us. That's great. <laughs> so the primary topic today is uh, three counterintuitive tips for a successful digital transformation. And there is, there are a million ways to tackle these kinds of projects, but um, this is a real shorthand for things you may not think about, but are really helpful in kind of getting these projects off the ground and moving them forward. So Jess, I don't know if you want to take it away it's, and start laying the groundwork. Yeah, so I think, you know, what's kind of core to how we approach our innovation projects and our kind of UX design projects, it all comes down to language, right? So creating a, a foundation of language that um, kind of directs or inspires further thought. And so when we're looking at a lot of our clients who go through these digital transformation assignments or projects, mm -hmm. um, a lot of times they come to these things with such preconceived kind of work plans that um, they end up really not transforming at all, right? They just kind of build or buy some new piece of something that they kind of tack onto the way that they work now. And so we really started to think about like, you know, how do you get to real transformation, right? Not just an incremental kind of improvement project. Um, and so a lot of it boils down to language. If we just stop calling it digital, right? So stop using the word digital in a digital transformation. If we say this is a business transformation, yeah. you start thinking about it differently. Yeah, so completely. We find a lot of clients are like, we have a digital transformation project, so we're moving from... Sitecore to WordPress, right? So that is not really digital transformation. That is that is a platform migration. <laughs> that's a platform migration. Yeah. And so, um, you know, when you start saying we're going to transform the business, and they're like, oh, what does that mean? So really, you start looking at that whole user experience. You start looking at your business goals. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not saying no companies do this already, uh, but the I think it just taking the time to kind of strip out that one word and really relook at everything that you want to do. And is this transformative? Is this project we're undertaking actually going to change the way that we are addressing our clients, uh, interacting with our customers, um, letting our employees interact with the business, right? So mm -hmm. what is really going to change? And so it's just a simple word change. I think it has a lot of power. So if you make it a digital transformation, well, that's just going to go to the IT team. Yeah. Right? And if it doesn't work, well, it's IT's fault. But I, once you remove that word digital, well, now it's we're all on board. And I think it broadens the scale and the scope. And it allows people to think more freely about the real problems they're looking to solve with this specific project, with this specific reorganization or business transformation project. So that kind of gets to the next point, and that's really um, back to the whole storytelling thing that, that we think uh, the next thing everyone should try to do is really map out their transformation plan without incorporating any technology into the descriptions. Um, challenge. Challenge. <laughs> uh, so really, like, okay, start mapping out what the benefits of this thing are, what the difference in someone's 
behavior will be, what the difference in the experience will be, what the difference in the outcomes will be, and start really crafting those stories. Uh, it does a number of things. First, it really kind of helps expose the holes in your plan, right? So mm-hmm. if you get to a point where you're like, I don't know why that's any good for anybody, then you probably don't want to do it. Um, the other thing it does is that it really helps everyone understand the goal of the transformation, not just like the steps involved, right? So, so the other thing about that is that when you create these stories, uh, the very nature of writing these stories is an act in prioritization, right? And so, mm. so the simple act of writing a story with a, you know, kind of a linear narrative, um, you can't include everything and you start to actually prioritize. Uh, and it helps like when you have the story and you understand what the priorities are for the project, then when decisions come up, right, you know it either supports that priority or it doesn't. And it uh, gives everyone a framework uh, mm-hmm. within which to evaluate those, you know, one-off choices that come up, right? It's kind of yeah. like having a mission statement. It's kind of like having your vision statement. All of these things roll together into that um, kind of that yardstick for evaluating decisions along the way. Ultimately, you know, when you're usually doing these projects, it's a series of flowcharts, right? Flowcharts, diagrams. What happens with those is eventually it becomes kind of a wallpaper, right? Because right. it's really hard to tease out intentionality in any one of those various mechanisms for displaying these types of reorganizations. And I think ultimately what, what is the downfall of those flowcharts and documents is everyone's like, oh, yeah, 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 I approve it. I'll go through it. And they kind of look at it roughly, but they can, don't understand where they're going, right? What's the, what's the final goal? And by putting all that in kind of a more linear fashion, it, it really helps inform every part um, to that larger overall narrative of what this transformation looks like. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we do that with all of our user journeys, right? Right. Where historically, when we first started doing these things, you know, back in the day, they were, they were these flow charts, right? And there was kind of you know, a grid and stages and decision mm. diamonds. Yep. They do become wallpaper. Like you you look at it and you're like, all, all the arrows touch all the little shapes and symbols, so it must be good. Right. Uh, but when you start really walking through with a story, when people know, like they can you know, call BS on some of the assumptions, right? Mm-hmm. So you have to incorporate those assumptions and really kind of lay bare the thinking behind these things. Then people have a much better foundation from which to react and kind of add to the experience. Yeah. And I'm not saying like workflows and diagrams aren't great shorthand, but I think if you don't start with that story part and then back it up with the, the diagrams, then you're, you're missing something. So the third step that we have in our kind of counterintuitive tips, um, you know, as most uh, enterprise level companies start to undergo digital transformation, it's usually, you know, the goal is we want to be better at what we do. Mm-hmm. Um, our philosophy is really like, let's sit down and take this moment. You're going to invest a lot of money. Uh, is You should think about it as, how would I disrupt the business I have now to create what's coming in the future, right? Right. And, you know, I've said this on a number of these podcasts, yep. that if you don't disrupt yourself, someone else will. And it doesn't mean that you're going to upend everything and restructure the entire company, but the, the benefit of that mindset is... Um, to come in and say, is there a different business model that, you know, new technologies are going to enable in the next 
two years, three years. Again, we mentioned AI in the beginning of this podcast. So, okay, so what if we have, um, you know, an entire bank of customer service reps right now? So if I can, you know, replace these 2,000 uh, employees with Google Duplex, no, I don't want to do that. But if someone's going to come in and suddenly that makes the cost of that transaction for them 30% less expensive than it is for me, then I need to know that. And I need to start building the tools to make sure that I can do that before a competitor can come in and do it yeah. to me. Yeah. Uh, excuse me, Mr. Dobb, Mr. Dobb, what's Google Duplex for the people listening to this who maybe haven't heard of that before? <laughs> it's maybe the most terrifying um, tech- technology. <laughs> the robots demo- are coming yeah. for you. Yeah, the, ah! most, the most terrifying technology demonstration I've seen in a long time. So Google Duplex is a conversational um, AI that really, really, really sounds like people. So um, there's this term in uh, the artificial intelligence community uh, uh, or a test called the Turing test. Mm-hmm. And it was devised by Alan Turing, you know, in the, in the 50s. Um, and his hypothesis was, if you're having a conversation with a computer and you can't distinguish be- between having a conversation with a human or a computer and you can't just tell, you have no idea, um, then, you know, quote, the computer is intelligent, right? It has mm-hmm. a human level of intelligence. Right. Um, now, I'm not saying uh, Google has an actual kind of sentient machine, yeah, they're getting there. But it, what, they, <laughs> well, what they did, though, was uh, point out that the Turing test is, is actually um, potentially not valid. Right. right. Um, if you stick to limited subject matter. So this demonstration, they had the computer call up and make reservations uh, for dinner. Uh, and then another one was it, it made an appointment, uh, hair appointment for a hair appointment. Right. Mm-hmm. And... And the uh, AI, much like myself, had ums and stutters and, yeah, it's, you know, weird like, um, uh, yeah, mm, yeah, great. And it really was a convincing, I mean, there were a couple times when, you know, when you knew, you're like, oh, yeah, I hear that kind of weird. Yeah, but weird otherwise, you wouldn't, like, you might just think that's a, that's a weird artifact. Like, it, it was when it was discussing, like, dates, saying dates and times, it got more, like, robot but otherwise, but it was responding to very vague kind of responses from the human on the other end. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in that very sh- kind of limited context, right? It was able to to really kind of surf the wave of that conversation, and you know, the the human had no idea. We kind of walked all the way over to duplex. So that was just a good illustration of duplex um, to get us back to kind of the idea of disruption, because. There, right there, right, is a technology that businesses could probably take advantage of soon. Like you, you are probably having, you may be having conversations with artificial intelligences soon or now that you don't know right. are artificial intelligence. I think now really summing all that up, the, the one thing that we like to stress is that you just need to envision the most desirable customer experience. And, and you know, once you can figure out how you really want it to be, you'll figure out the technology uh, later. I mean, yeah. technology finds a way, honestly. I mean, you look at, you know, science fiction is a great example, right? Mm-hmm. The greatest things that change our life today were all envisioned by writers, you know, as, as much as 50 or 75 years ago, yeah. right? You know, you look at, you know, 
the first Star Trek series, and basically they had, you know, mobile phones. Mm-hmm. The second Star Trek series, they had iPads. Yep. And so, really, you just need to start envisioning, like, what the future could be without worrying about whether it has to be, you know, Sitecore or WordPress or um, any, you know, IBM platform. And, you know, then figure it out. Because when you start with the technology, you limit kind of what you think can be done. And ultimately, I think you just set yourself on a slower pace and you're going to open up kind of the a window for competitors to come in who are not kind of boxed in with that kind of thinking to come in and eat your lunch. And we don't want that. Nobody wants that. All right. Thanks, Justin. Thanks, Justin. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Brilliant. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe or rate us on iTunes and SoundCloud. Brilliant is recorded at Mignani, an experienced design and strategy firm in Chicago, Illinois. To learn more about what Mignani can do for you, visit Mignani.com. That's M-A-G-N-A-N-I.com.